Welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Hey, Mike, how's it going? How's it going? Keeping it real, my man. Keeping it real, exactly. So you want to talk about some asthma? Let's talk about some asthma, Brady Bouchard. As we're as we're after our little hiatus, after like our four month hiatus. Yeah, it's a, well, it's a good topic to get back into. I think exactly uh, if you work in the I, emerge or cl- clinic at all, you kind of you have to, you have to. Asthma, asthma is a super important topic and stuff, and it's one of our top ninety nine, Doctor Bouchard. And yeah. just a little plug for Doctor Bouchard. Congratulations, Brady had a baby. <laughs> Thank you, in Mike. Hello, world. Hello, <laughs> world. Yes. Hello, world, Brady Bouchard. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, you gotta love excited. it. But congratulations, Brady. It's awesome. Thank you, Mike. There much, you go. Much appreciated. It's going the well. Man from, the man from Saskatchewan, the integrator. Returning to his... You're not editing this out, Dr. Bouchard. I know. You tell me that every time. Out. and I, I leave one or two in for you, but... Leave... You have to leave this in, right? Yeah. World sexiest man, the integrator. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So we're going to rock some, some asthma world. So what are we going to talk about today? Like, what are we going to talk about? We're going to do acute asthma. We're going to do chronic asthma. Yeah. Emerge, yeah. You know, clinic focus, kind of that chronic stuff and emerge there focus, kind of the acute stuff. There, think, we can do both. Yeah. We can expand our horizons, Brady. Yeah. Well, they overlap like, a lot. One thing they have in Saskatchewan is endless horizons, right? Yeah, that's true. I was telling Brady, everyone, a little bit earlier that I visited uh, Saskatchewan and it's, uh, it's, uh, it was a beautiful uh, trip. My uh, my my kids had a blast, and uh, and it was uh, it was fun, flat but fun. <laughs> flat but fun, yeah, exactly. Flat but fun. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So what are we gonna do? Like, okay, Brady, um, acute asthma. We'll do acute, and then we'll do some chronic. Does that sound pretty? Does that sound pretty fair? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, okay, excellent. So, so what do you want? What do you want to start off with? We'll start off with some acute asthma and rock the acute, um, um, the acute asthma, asthma world. So Brady Bouchard, like when you have somebody that comes inside, you know, when you're sitting in the emerge, looking out on that endless prairie horizon, does that make sense? And they bring in, you know, somebody that, that you think have an asthma attack and stuff, you know, I always say the first thing you have to remember to do is do your ABCs, right? Like that's everything, right? And I find, I find that, you know, and I, I know I harp on that a lot and I, and I, and I, and I, and I do a lot of stuff with that, but I'm like saying that is what's so important, right? Because when that person comes in, that person has undifferentiated respiratory badness. So you're not really sure what's going on. So make sure you do your, uh, your, your ABCs, make sure you do your OMIP, get the person on a monitor and stuff like that. Those types of, uh, those types of things. So that doesn't change, right? Because the diagnosis of asthma is a diagnosis. It happens after you see the patient, right? You need to get in time and information those two things that you don't have in any critical critically ill patient stuff right yeah perfect and right after that looking at the vitals i think the nice thing about asthma as a disease at least in my experience is these kids usually look sick they do i don't think you're going to miss an asthma you might not catch that it's asthma necessarily right away exactly but but you know you have a kid with some respiratory symptoms and they look on exactly at least they're not going to sit in the waiting room you'll you'll uh, you'll be looking at them early the nurse is going to recognize it and bring them in Exactly, exactly. You know, I'm a big fan, Brady Bouchard, and you can read about this, and they love to use this across the pond, and they're using it a lot more, a lot more in North America and stuff like that, too. They love it in the ICU. These early warning scores, does that make sense? Like, because there is a population, you're right, a lot of people look sick, and it's like, duh, this person is like, 
has the deadsies. Does that make sense? But there's a lot, there's, there's a population of people that may necessarily not give the impression that they're as sick as they are, right? Or maybe they give a, they give a, 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 a um, 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 late that, they could potentially get sicker. Does that make sense? And get yeah. really sick, right? So these early warning score systems, right? The, you know, a great one is the, you know, the pediatric early warning score, right? It's been validated more in, 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 in patients, right? Um, 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 in, in patients, you know, but I'm starting to kind of consider sort of pediatric early warning scores and adult early warning scores, right? So what's to kind of say the chance that someone that doesn't really appear that bad right now is going to deteriorate. You know, that's kind of like medicine level two, right? Yeah. They're sick right now versus they don't look that bad, but their chance of deterioration is high. Does that make sense? And they're showing some physiologic markers that are giving me some indication that they could undertake that deterioration and stuff. Yeah, exactly. They use that. They call it the Pew score. Yeah, the Pew score, the pediatric early warming score. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that for my inpatients, actually. And they love to use it across the pond. And they're using it more and more here and stuff. You know, I, 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 I'm, you know, the, uh, the, so these early warning systems, you're going to start hearing a lot more about them, right? Yeah. So kind of to pick up that population of patient that basically maybe not look, you're kind of on the fence as being, well, they're not uber sick right now, but are they showing some physiologic parameters that may lead to them decompensating or so, right? right. So, and I'm a big fan of this too, because we have to transfer patients out all the time. And sometimes it's a, it's a, it's, it can be hard to kind of convince the intensivist that someone that you kind of have a funny feeling about, you understand, yeah. is really that quote unquote sick, right? So, so that's, uh, that's, uh, that's just something we can, uh, we can look into and stuff. Yeah. We don't have a specific asthma scoring, uh, exactly. tool that I know of. We have a croup scoring tool that's reasonably useful. Um, but like you said, the Pews is really good as an, in, on an inpatient basis, on but, an inpatient I, but basis, I actually think yeah. CTAS, so like CTAS is Canadian, eh? Like that's what yeah, the C CTAS means. is Canadian, right? Exactly. Validated in the emergency department yeah, and stuff. It's so pretty reasonable it, for triage is what I'm saying. Right. Usually you don't get these asthmatics or, you know, respiratory exactly. sick kids sitting in exactly. the waiting And you know what you can use in pediatrics? Remember your PRAM score, right? Remember the PRAM score, the pediatric, I forget the algorithm. Brady, look up what the algorithm, I'm just so used uh, to saying. Yeah, I, haven't, I, I don't use it to be honest, but I, I know what you're talking about. Pediatric respiratory assessment measure. You know, that's a great little simple bedside tool. And it's also good for assessing the response to your interventions, right? Like, so yeah. you can get an objective kind of way of assessing this is a response to my interventions, right? Um, yeah. um, um, so there's a lot of different, you know, especially for asthma, a lot of different early uh, uh, um, tools that you can do, use and stuff. I like the prime score. Different hospitals are going to like different scoring systems. I'm a big fan of using something. So more so that you can assess response, right? Yeah, because it's enough. great to say, yeah, a lot of times you'll be able to say this person is doing better subjectively. But when you can tie it to a score that actually is associated with better outcomes, you can say their prime score went from eight to two. Does that make sense? And yeah. that is associated with a clear improvement. And as well, too, when you're talking to your tertiary care center, they when they hear that score, it's going to mean something to them. Do you understand? Yeah. Like it's going to hear that score, be able to objectify improvement. Yeah, yeah. it'll definitely help sell the patient for transport. I find in the asthmatics, especially the young kids, um, mom and dad are pretty good about this too. Like after, exactly. after they've had their back-to-back ventolins and they've been yeah. sitting in the emergency department for an hour. If you go yeah. ask the parents, they're pretty good about knowing, you know, yeah, he's improved exactly. a little bit. No, he's gotten worse. You know, he's exactly. already doing great. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. So that can be an assessment in itself and stuff, you know? So step number one, get your ABCs, get your OMIP in, make sure asthma can kill people. It kills people acutely because you get acute hyperinflation that can have hemodynamic effects. And you can also have respiratory failure, right? Um, you trap a whole bunch of air, your diaphragm shuts out. 
Deadsy's badness, right? We don't want that to happen. So we need to make sure that we um, catch people early who are going to decompensate early. Right? right and aggressively uh, and aggressively treat them um, uh, um your pram score lots of other scores i like the pram just because we used it where i trained and stuff and it's i'm not sure if they use a different one in western canada but use your rule du jour to help you kind of triage how bad this child's asthma is or how bad this person's uh, asthma is so okay you have a, you have somebody that comes inside an eight-year-old they have you know they have a history of um, multiple asthma attacks in the past parents say yeah this happens all the time what are you going to do? You see the name emerge. The first thing is taking a look at them and uh, yeah. seeing seeing how they're doing. Like I said, these kids are, you can pretty quickly, uh, in my mind at least, lump them into, you know, sick, not sick. And, yeah, exactly. You know, if they're talking, they're sitting around, they're they're interactive, they're, uh, you know, not looking too distressed, they're not using accessory muscles. Perfect. They're not, they're not lethargic. Um, exactly. They're not just, you know, passive. They're alive. No, yeah, <laughs> they're alive. Um, you probably have a few minutes to get some history from them. And if they're eight years old, they'll be able to give you some history themselves. Perfect. Um, perfect. It's the, you know, it's particularly in asthmatics, the worrying thing other than just the toxic looking kids, period, um, is the silent breathing. So it, exactly. you, you have to really differentiate if, they're, if their asthma is so bad that they're not wheezing anymore. That their yeah. that their airways are totally shut down. Exactly. But they exactly. usually have other symptoms in that case. I don't think too. I mean, I always got that warning in in med school and going through residency about these you know silent breathing, um, impending arrest asthmatics. Yeah. I don't find that you know they don't look well otherwise. So I don't find that you miss those when they happen. Yeah. You're exactly. like, man, this this patient looks bad. You might not know it's yeah. asthma right off the bat if they're not wheezing yeah, and exactly. they look really really toxic. Um, yeah. But like you said, they usually have a history or, you know, they'll still have some wheeze when you listen. Perfect. To perfect. But yeah, early, early therapy in the emergency department, uh, particularly for for just your ED flow, because these patients come in so often, um, they're relatively innocuous medications to give. Get a Ventolin neb on them right off the bat. Um, throw in some Atrovent. Uh, it's not going to do any harm if it's not asthma generally. Um, yeah. But, but I'd get it, you know nursing it triage will come back and even say hey you know this is we got a bad asthmatic in here can i start therapy even before exactly. you walk in the room kind of thing. and i think that's a key point is that your intervention at first because a lot of your algorithms for asthma especially on pediatric management of algorithm uh, um, asthma they all based on doing the same intervention first and that's bronchodilation aggressive bronchodilation and then seeing what is the response to that bronchodilation Right? Yeah. So regardless if you have severe or regardless if you have mild or moderate asthma, your yeah. initial intervention is going to be the same, right? Yeah, You're exactly. going to need to get bronchodilation. You're going to need to get these, uh, um, 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 get uh, get the lungs smaller so you can shift people into the better part of the curve so their diaphragm doesn't shut down. You need to do that now, right? Yeah, um, um, you need to get that done uh, quickly. So that's, you know, that's my sort of take home message with asthma is that if you have a kid and you're concerned that the, you know, the kid is wheezy, irrespective of their disease severity, you're going to want to get them the intervention that they need, right? Because sometimes it's more what is their response to that maximal bronchodilation, right? That's more important. Do you understand? Yeah. Like kid with bad asthma that comes inside looking with bad asthma that responds to you Ventolin and Atrophin and now looks great, goes down a different pathway than kid with bad asthma who you get Ventolin and Atrovent and who's now peachy. Does that make sense? Sitting around yeah. running up and down. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I think that's the key point too, is that you can have a uh, quote unquote mild asthma presenting into the department. But there's the two different cases, and one worries you much more. There's the the mild case where they're doing okay right now. They haven't really self-treated at all, um, yeah. and, they'll, and they'll respond really well to bronchodilators versus yeah. the, the mild asthma that's had maximal Ventolin for four hours. The parents have been doing a really good job. 
And exactly. He might be doing good for the next two minutes here, but he's going to yeah. deteriorate fast because he's not responding to the bronchodilators really. Exactly. And that's exactly. going to be the patient that's going to be going down to, you know, mag solve and transfer out. And Ex- all of that wonderful, all of that wonderful stuff, you know? And desperately hoping that you don't have to tube the kid. Exactly, exactly. Because that's the last thing you want to honestly do when you have a bad asthmatic is have to um, tube them if necessary and stuff, you know? That's why I like to call this term basma. You know, there's yeah. there's asthma like, hi, I'm a little wheezy. The kid looks great. They're playing with blocks. And you're like, this is great. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and then there's like, oh my God, this kid looks really, really sick. Do you understand? Now, of course, for that really, really sick child that you can see that on the initial assessment, they're going to get the, you know, they're going to get the full monitor, but they're still going to get that initial intervention, right? You're yeah. going to watch them a lot, uh, a lot, uh, a lot closer and stuff. You know what I mean? You're, they're still going to get those initial interventions. You're going to watch them a lot closer. And then I find the next key standpoint is what is their response to that maximal intervention? Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. like I said, the, the kids that worry me are the ones that have had Back-to-back Ventolin for an hour, so they, you know, five milligrams every 20 minutes, um, yeah. and they don't look any better, or they look worse yeah. after that hour, you're like, exactly. this, this is not going to go well. This is not going to go well, yeah. And yeah. the point to emphasize that, because of the cohort of patients that present with this, so usually young, otherwise healthy kids, um, yeah. they have a lot of physiologic reserve when they come in, yeah. and, and can breathe really fast on their own to compensate for their tiny airways. The last exactly. thing you ever want to do with these kids is tube them. Oh, yeah, exactly. Because two of them might mean muscle rel- Exactly. The last thing you want to do for an asthmatic, unless it's absolutely necessary, is is intubate them, right? Because they do not, they're trapping a lot of air. Um, um, I've had some kids with bad, bad asthma, you try to bypass them for, you understand, to see if you can help um, offload their diaphragm as well. You With the BiPAP, and you're dealing with asthma or bad asthma that's not improving, the advantage is you can still use your nebulization through the BiPAP, do you understand? So you can still give them the treatments while buying them some time with the BiPAP, right? Now, I just want to make this, like, maybe we should just emphasize, like, there's a lot of kids that come inside that have, that look fine and have a little weed. We're not talking like those kids, they can be managed as an outpatient. Do you understand? Like they can be managed as a, that they can be managed as an outpatient. We're talking about children who are more moderate to severe asthma. Does that make sense? So they come inside with bona fide respiratory distress. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. The, the patients that are desatting, the patients exactly. that are tripoding, the patients that are lethargic. Yeah. Um, the ones that have no air entry or close to no air entry. Exactly. Exactly. You know. And especially the ones that have had maximal therapy from the parents. Exactly. Um, they've been doing exactly. what they've been told to do, and now they're exactly. in the department. Those are the... It, it, that's what we're focusing on today, right? Like, you see a lot of um, kids in the emergency department. We see a lot of kids in the emergency department who have a mild wheeze and look fine and are in no respiratory distress, right? Yeah. You know, that goes down a different pathway. Do you understand? Like, that yeah. goes down a slightly different pathway um, yeah. uh, uh, in terms of management. You know what I mean? In terms of, uh, in terms of uh, management. We're talking about sicker kids here. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. The other thing to, to put into there, so whether they're sick kids or not, uh, when you're doing these back-to-back Ventolin, so you should be doing, for older kids, 5 milligrams, for younger kids, 2.5 milligrams, Q20, exactly. minute, Q20 minutes for an hour at least. Yeah. Um, so you're moderate to severes. Um, and those first three should have uh, atrovent or ipitropium as well. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So you definitely want to maximize that bronchodilation. Yeah. Um, and um, and like you said, there's, there's kind of a standard algorithm for asthma. It's well-researched. Exactly. It's in the CPS guidelines. Every patient yes. should get that up front. Exactly. And then after that hour, you're going to have a good idea of, you know, this patient's immediately going to go home. This patient needs to be watched for a few hours and emerge. This patient needs to get transferred out. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a really good point that you mentioned. So you're kind of using your initial assessment 
Try to see if you can use some sort of structured tool so you can assess, you can help quantify the response a little bit. And then you can, you, your, your initial therapy for your more moderate and severe are definitely going to have a component of an anticholinergic mixed in with your beta agonist. I'm easier than you. I just give everybody five. To be honest, if you're really you sick go. with asthma. You give everybody, I give everybody five, you know, but yeah, you're, you're right. You can, if you want to follow the specific, you can give a slightly do- lower dose. You know, yeah. I always say tachycardia is better than asystole. That's my tip. <laughs> uh, it's a dose adjustment for uh, Atrovent as well, uh, under 20 yeah, exactly. kilograms. But you're right. You could give the same dose. Like exactly. I said, these are relatively innocuous medications. Exactly, exactly. And children are going to really auto-titrate the dose that they get anyway, right? Yeah. Um, um, because remember that, now this is always a debate too and stuff, you know, because we've all heard, well, MDI versus versus nebulization. You know, I remember in med school, they always taught us that they're both the same deposition. I just, gen- and, and I guess, you know, they are, but keep in mind those deposition studies are done in people like who are healthy. Do you understand? With perfect technique. Do you understand? You have to keep that in mind uh, um, um, as well. You know, sometimes giving, if I have a really, really severe asthmatic, you're basically giving a continuous nebulization, right? For that first hour, right? Exactly. Just filling it, uh, uh, um, filling up that Just little. Just topping it up every time. Yeah. Exactly. Just topping it up uh, every time. Remember to check your flow rates as well, too. Remember, yeah. you want to get that particle um, a certain side to really maximize delivery to that lower airway, right? So if you're just cranking that up to 15 liters, uh, uh, 15 liters per minute, you're not actually going to get an efficient particle size, right? It has to probably be somewhere between like four and seven liters per minute on your, uh, on your, uh, on your regulator, right? So just remember that, too. Yeah. Because, you know, sometimes, you know, it's, 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 if it goes too fast, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I remember an RT supposed to, told me once you know and, and this is not you know it's it's like it has to look like a bong hit does that make sense yeah exactly no it's true though if the flow rate is up too high it doesn't look like that or you don't get that effect you have to be concerned about it right? yeah it has to be um, bubbling in the, the cylinder d- and then you have to have yeah. this misting effect that you can exactly you know, visibly exactly see, so you know and it's actually it. dependent on like the atomization effect that you're getting to get yeah. it to target the lower airways and stuff yeah. right no, that's true and like you said, where they, so, I mean, there are good outpatient studies for MDI versus nebulizer. And I think it's good. We have a lot of patients here who really love nebulizers just for the sake of it. I definitely do education and clinic around, no, an MDI, especially with a spacer, um, yeah. is probably equivalent. But in the emergency department, I would, I've never used an MDI. I never, yeah, ex- I exactly. And especially because we're talking about, you know, from my mild to maybe a bit moderates and stuff, you know, you're going to consider it, but, but, um, definitely because it really, remember those studies looked at perfect technique. Do you understand? Like looked at perfect technique. So, um, um, yeah, if you definitely, if you have somebody with severe, I, I wouldn't bought because chances are they're going to be so tachypnic. They're going to not be able to coordinate. And especially if they're hypoxemic, you know, to kind of break the oxygen seal does that make sense and 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 if you have a really sick asthmatic who's on the verge of respiratory distress remember you're gonna have to might have to give that nebulization through a bypass does that make sense like to help yeah, temporize things exactly. initially right yeah. if you have a bad enough asthmatic right well, who's this, on the verge of a respiratory arrest right exactly so, yeah. and, and there's psychology in there too like if the patient's been giving them an mdi for the last couple of hours and then comes into the apartment you feel they're kind of mild to low moderate and you just give them an mdi and then send them home they're yeah. gonna be like why the hell did i even come in yeah, um, exactly. And, and then they're exactly. just going to come back two hours later to see the next doc after shift. Exactly. So, exactly. You know. So I think the thing with MDIs, yes, MDIs are equivalent to nebulizations provided the technique is perfect. Does that make sense? And the question is, can people with severe asthma really do perfect technique? Do you understand? Or do they have other things going on which may limit that ability for them to be able to do perfect technique, right? So yep. it's a bit of a judgment call, but 
And frankly, what I've seen clinically for kids that are more severe, um, um, more severe asthma, it's almost exclusively, um, uh, um, um, it's almost exclusively nebulization. Yep, fair enough. And also, Perfect. so the other on the on the sicker end of moderate and severe, um, especially if you think you're keeping them, um, they should probably get an initial dose of steroids as well. Perfect. I love that. If you look at it for mild asthma, giving the steroid initially, we don't have good evidence for it, right? Because a lot of those kids, if you have a kid that's not that sick and you give them one puff of Ventolin and they look normal, does that make sense? Like they perfectly are fine. You could question the actual, like, is there actual benefit from giving that kid steroid, right? Guidelines will talk about considering giving the child steroid, but you know, that's often extrapolated from kids with more persistent asthma, not this intermittent asthma. You understand? Now, for kids with definitely more severe, moderate and severe asthma, you're definitely giving the steroid. And there's probably a little evidence to giving the steroid up front. Do you understand? Because it's probably the, the earlier it can take effect, the earlier you're going to get some of that acute uh, uh, um, 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 anti-inflammatory effect. Going. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think this is a good point too to mention something that I find trips people up sometimes, especially in cough and cold uh, season, is croup versus asthma, which can be very yeah. clear cut. Sometimes yeah. they can overlap. But yeah. I find like people get confused around Croup is an upper airway obstruction. It's yeah. an inspiratory strider. Exactly. Asthma is a lower respiratory obstructive wheeze, and it's usually yeah. prolonged expiratory phase. That's exactly. They're actually pretty clear cut, but if they're yeah. all chrysal and you know have lots of uh, you know respiratory symptoms, they're, they're drooling and they have a runny nose, that sort of thing, that can yeah. trigger asthma too. Um, yeah, exactly. But it can be croup, or it can just be you know bronchiolitis in the in the younger kids, or a, or a normal cold. Perfect. So you have to actually differentiate that because the therapies are different. Exactly. In practical uh, purposes, I find, especially if you're, if it's not clear cut, I mean, again, the Ventolin's not going to hurt. The steroids are going to help for the croup and they're not going to yeah. hurt the asthma that sometimes you can overlap therapy, but usually it's, it's worth trying to take the time to differentiate it. Um, right, and, right. And you can get that based on, you know, from the parents uh, often. Unless it's the very first time that they're presenting with wheeze, yeah, and they're really young, uh, you know, they're they're gonna know that the puffers either help or they don't, and uh, you know, with it, if this is different from their usual wheeze. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No. 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 I think that's a very good point. Um. So steroids. So what do you like, Dex or Pred? Uh. So Dex is the most anti-inflammatory of the medications. Uh, Perfect. Can, love it. Yeah. You can use either. Um. I love it. Yeah. I usually I, use dexamethasone I, just because I think. You know, I like that anti-inflammatory effect. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if there's and, any particular evidence for it over over prednisone, but what can be the big advantage is, is that remember now they're doing a lot questioning like prednisone. You're looking at a three to five day course. Does that make yeah. sense for a kid? Where dexamethasone, there may be a population of kids where you just get a single dose, right? Like you just give a good point six milligram per kilogram dose, and you might be able to get away with a single dose, right? Yeah, um, most of those studies didn't look as kids with that severe asthma. You know, probably right. kids in more the moderate range. You know what I mean? Yeah. Probably if they're more severe and they're going to be admitted or go to the ICU, they're probably going to get more of a course of prednisone. You understand? Or some type a steroid they probably warrant it but yeah. most of the people that maybe come inside their moderate name prove and you think i should probably get away definitely consider a dose of dexamethasone right yeah um, um versus a longer uh, potential course of uh, uh of uh, prednisolone i think it's also important to highlight too um nice little guidelines came out a couple years ago by the cps looking at because remember young kids you know, it's that bronchiolitis, right? So yeah. like it's, 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 you know, cough, wheeze, shortness of breath, that type of thing under the age of two, most of the time, 
that's actually just bronchiolitis, right? So the first thing you want to do is don't turn off your brain. Remember other things, foreign bodies, um, um, can do that, you know, uh, um, um, so don't turn off your brain, right? You know, make sure that you're considering other clinical probabilities, but they've actually just come out, you know, it's about a year and a half old now with how to deal with the kids like that who are under two, right? Right. We're not going to have that spironometric diagnosis of asthma that we talk about for that the other CTS guidelines talked about, um, um, that, you know, it's hard to do spirometry on a three-year-old. And it actually now comes up with, there's a population of kids, you know what I mean? That definitely who are under two that are going to behave like, like asthmatics. Do you understand that you're going to treat them like asthmatics, right? Because you remember, we don't like, do we have evidence for bronchiolitis and giving steroids? No. Do we have evidence for doing much for bronchiolitis? No. You understand? You know, there's no puffer that has evidence. There's no Ventolin. um, um, Epi is always in and out of favor. It seems with the pediatricians every three or four years. Do you understand about whether or not hypertonic saline is kind of in and then out? Do you understand? And It's nasal suction and supplemental O2 if it's below 88. Exactly. We don't have evidence that those interventions actually do anything, right? It's basically washing your hands, giving kids oxygen who are a bit hypoxemic and supportive care is probably where most of the bang for the buck is, right? But we know there's a population of those kids that actually have asthma. Does that make sense? They're a year and a half and they've been doing this three or four times. Are they have asthma that they actually have a diagnosis of asthma? Well, and and that makes sense because remember in the older kids, you can have, you know, upper respiratory tract infection triggered asthma. So when they get sick, they get asthmatic. And the CPS guidelines have that in there as well as they break it into uh, bronchodilator responsive uh, bronchiolitis and they have bronchodilator non-responsive bronchiolitis. Bronchiolitis. Basically, the idea is that if you're going to diagnose bronchiolitis plus or minus asthma or reactive airways disease in these kids is they can do a trial of a bronchodilator. If it works, great. They can continue with it. If they don't, you stop it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And that's per, yeah. And, um, and yeah, and, and they've given us now some indication, like some, some guidelines sort of evidence for how to deal with these younger kids, right? Yeah. Um, um, sort of, sort of how to deal with these, uh, younger kids and stuff. And it's kind of based on, you know, do they have evidence either now of airflow obstruction or historically airflow obstruction? You know what I mean? And stuff. Um, 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 you know, have they in the past had something like an asthma-like exacerbation, right? And then if they have, you know, maybe considering a therapeutic trial, right? If they if they have a mild exacerbation, just use something like a beta agonist. If it's more moderate to severe, then consider adding an inhaled corticosteroid. Does that make sense? And then assessing their response, right? Um, um, so it's it's I think it's important to to bring that up as well too, because it gives us a little bit more guideline guidance on what to do in these younger kids. Yeah. So pretty cool. And that's what I see our pediatrician do often is uh, the bronchiolitis kids, all the bronchiolitis kids, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, not even looking at the history, they get a trial of Ventolin. Uh, If it works great, they continue it. If not, then they stop it. Um, Exactly. That's pretty reasonable. Exactly, exactly. And if they're constantly getting exacerbations, you don't think anything yeah, else is going on. Now that yeah, they'll they'll give an inhaled corticosteroid and reassess after a certain period of time and say, was there a definitive improvement? And if there is, maybe this kid is gonna be diagnosed with asthma. Does that make sense? Even though they're under potentially the age of two. Perfect. So just keep in mind that, you know, so um, in terms of asthma exacerbation, so what are good take home points here for right now, when you're looking out of the expansive sky of Saskatchewan, like Dr. Brady is Bouchard is right now with nothing, you know, with horizon, nothing but a horizon in front of you. And the sexy Brady Bouchard looks out on that on that horizon and sees the ambulance coming. It's ABC's OMIP, right? Yeah, yeah. hit him hard, hit him early. 
hit them hard and I'm, I'm early, right? People who are severe asthma, keep an eye on, monitor, right? Yeah. You are going to be doing aggressive bronchodilation, which is basically ipotropium bromide and Ventolin. Does that make sense? About yeah. three nebulizations, right? And then you're assessing, did the child have an objective clinical improvement? Exactly. You're going to, you know, you're going to be sitting in your department for an hour getting therapy. Yeah give or take. Um, yeah. And then after that hour, you're going to be able to triage them fairly accurately to, yeah. you know, home, in-hospital, transfer. And uh, transfer out. Exactly. Exactly. If they're completely back to normal, their PRAM score has has improved significantly. Do that make sense where they have mild? Then that might be somebody you might want to watch for a little bit and could potentially go home. Does that make sense? Yeah. If their score is not improving, they're still sick despite that maximal bronchodilation, you're going to need to get the more aggressive care. Moderate, if they're just kind of staying there, then they're going to probably be, need to be hospitalized and, 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 and given more bronchodilation. Yeah. Uh, instructions for uh, parents for when to come back. Um, yeah. I think it varies based on clinician. I tell all my uh, parents, uh, it depends how good they are. Sometimes you change the interval, but uh, whatever their Ventolin is prescribed. So, you know, two puffs every four hours, PRN, um, they can go down to two hours. Uh, if they get below two hours and they find their kid still isn't, you know, responsive and they're, they're getting worse with Ventolin every two hours. I yeah. tell them to start considering making their way into the emergency department at that time. Kind of. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's perfect and stuff. Yeah. If you have a kid that comes inside and they're really mild, which is the vast majority of kids that we see, right? They have a mild wheeze. They're talking. They don't have any respiratory distress. Sats are fine. Um, um, they just have you know, a mild, mild exacerbation, they can get, they go down a slightly different pathway, right? Like they're going to still have access to their, to, to their um, um, beta agonist therapy, right? They're going to need to follow up with a primary care provider, right? And we're going to talk about that when we talk about chronic asthma. What are the, some of the things, whether they might be started on an inhaled corticosteroid, keep in mind the benefits for giving them a steroid, an oral corticosteroid for a three to five day course. You have to think about it. We don't have great evidence for, for kids that come inside with mild asthma. Does that make sense? That, yeah. that, 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 that steroid is going to necessarily, um, affect their outcomes, right? Because most of that data is extrapolated from kids, which mu with, with much more severe attacks, right? Yeah. And a lot exactly. of kids have what we call intermittent asthma, right? They have, they have, they're fine in between and they get a cold and they just get this wheeze, right? But they're fine in between. We're more, more the evidence with inhaled corticosteroid comes from more 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 persistent asthma, right? Where you're having symptoms intercurrent between exacerbations. Yeah, I think that viral-induced asthma is, is something that yeah, parents exactly. need to know as yeah. well. That, you know, when they get colds, depending on how their kid responds, I mean, some kids get asthma from exertion, some get it from temperature changes, some get it from, you know, all different kinds of triggers. The, the viral one is one that parents need to be aware of, that when they get a yeah. cold, they'll probably need their Ventolin, and that's okay. Yeah, um, exactly. But then, you know, having some threshold for when they need to come back to the department. Exactly. Exactly. No, I think that's, uh, I think that's important. What did you want you, let's say, have you had, because I've had on a few occasions, some kids with really bad asthma, like let's yeah. say you've given them three bronchodilations and they are not improving, right? Yeah, and they're exactly. even getting worse, right? And I think yeah. your point is, is that A, you continue the bronchodilation, right? Yeah. You intubate them only if absolutely necessary, right? You avoid it if you can at all costs. Remember, sticking a tube down somebody's throat who is hyper-responsive airways is just going to cause such a degree of laryngospasm and bronchospasm that yeah. you might not be able to even overcome that, right? So you really want to you really want to avoid that at all costs, yeah. right? Well, and you just have to think of the physiology of the kids. So these kids are compensating yeah. by having very small tidal volumes and very yeah. high respiratory rates. Exactly. That are, that are very hard to bag appropriately. 
Exactly. It's, it's, exactly. It's, it's, it's too hard to do. You're going to be doing, exactly. you know, like you're going to be exactly. vibrating the bag basically to try and uh, uh, to try know, to match that, to, right? to match what they're doing. Yeah. And you can't do exactly. it. Exactly. Exactly. And stuff. So don't do it unless it's absolutely, absolutely and, and necessary. I like in those cases, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Yeah. Um, oftentimes um, when children are in that, they're so anxious, you know, you got to give them a bit of ketamine. Does that make sense? It may be a bit of a bronchodilator as well too, but yeah. it just kind of makes it so they tolerate the mask, right? Because you need to get them as much as possible to be able to tolerate that BiPAP mask. So you can truly avoid that intubation. And the advantage of doing that is that the BiPAP is going to be able to coordinate with that child's breathing way better than you bagging and masking them. And you can still do the intervention, which is Ventolin and Atrovent. Yeah. And ketamine being particularly good, A, for the non-invasive ventilation, like, yeah. uh, you know, Weingard's ideas around delayed sequence intubation. Exactly. Um, but exactly. also ketamine, the, the pharmacology of it itself, that it's a bronchodilator. Exactly, exactly. So it may be a bit of bronchodilator. The evidence is up on things like, you know, subcutaneous epinephrine. I've had to do that a few times in the past before. Magnesium, you're definitely giving some magnesium in these cases, right? So severe asthma, you're definitely giving some magnesium. So I kind of, I, I, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going to be sort of, you continue your bronchodilation, add some magnesium, early BiPAP, does that make sense? Or early non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So you can continue your nebulizations um, 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 through the uh, uh, through the BiPAP and avoid intubation at all costs. Do you understand? Because uh, trust me, I've had to do it on a two and it's not fun. Do you understand? And it is, oh, yeah. it, they're essentially impossible, um, um, to, 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 the, uh, to, 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 to connect to the ventilator or to bag, right? You are going to get such an uncontrollable amount of laryngospasm and bronchospasm that you will not be able to overcome. Imagine you have a young child with hyper responsive airways and all of a sudden they have a plastic tube in between their cords, right? They are just going to tighten up and good luck trying to transfer that patient who is at a, such a high risk of barotrauma. Uh, you know what I mean and stuff and now they're going to be going up into an airplane at 20,000 feet right which is they're not going to get a small pneumothorax at 20,000 speed they're going to get a very large pneumothorax and you're going to have to do the needle decompression not fun hashtag personal experience <laughs> fair enough Mike and it's, I think it's worth mentioning when you talk to the pediatrician so um, because we see so many of these patients I think you especially if you work really you have to be super comfortable doing an, you know an hour of therapy uh, subutamol uh, ipitropium and reassessing at that point, if you think they're, you know, they're not trending the way you would like, um, you, you have some time, you continue the albutamol, you give the pediatrician a call, um, you know, they're going to be the ones that can, can help you decide on the MagSol versus, uh, you know, epinephrine subcutaneous versus uh, non-invasive or I think it's worth at least calling the pediatrician if after an hour of therapy, you've, uh, you've kind of failed or, or, or not improved significantly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And stuff. So Perfect, perfect and stuff. Awesome stuff. I think you hit all the acute stuff, man. I think we hit all the acute stuff. What about adults? We've been talking about kids. Like like a lot of the same principles, right? Yeah. Same principles. Is there much different between the two? I'm trying to think. Not of what. really. Not Pro- really. I mean, it, adults decompensate. Like they can't get that respiratory rate up as fast. So I almost feel, although I've never been in that position, that if I had yeah. a tube and asthmatic, I'd much rather tube an adult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I find a lot of ad- guidelines with adults, they like sort of this peak flow sort of using that to kind of risk stratify, you know what I mean? Mild, moderate, severe. You know, that's somewhat okay. Like usually people with severe asthma, they're not going to really tolerate a peak flow. Does that make sense? And you usually yeah, tell exactly. that they have severe asthma. You don't usually need the peak flow. Um, um, 
um, to help do that. You find a lot of guidelines tend to sort of have sort of in adults more of a peak flow using that to kind of risk stratify. I kind of kind of obvious like like because usually people with severe asthma, you can tell. Do you understand? Like you don't need to if you're grabbing the peak flow and not grabbing the ventilin, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> if you're about to have a respiratory arrest. For sure. Let's pound through uh, some of the chronic stuff, I think, eh? Perfect. Yeah. And I think this is where, so yeah, so we talked about some of the acute stuff, the emergency department management um, for both adults and pediatrics and some of the key points with each of them. Yeah. Chronic asthma, right? We see a lot in our family medicine clinics, right? Um, I think one of the challenges at first is to make the diagnosis, right? So with chronic asthma, this is not, this, this is a chronic disease that can have acute exacerbations, right? Um, um, the chronic disease that can have sort of an acute um, exacerbations. As you said, it's mostly obstruction, like it, it causes airway obstruction. And I think in chronic asthma, you want to make sure that you're using some type of test, especially with the adults to get to, to objectify the diagnosis. Do you understand? Absolutely. So this is something where, you know, your spirometry of getting um, um, an FEV1 over FVC, this is where something I think is important, right? Because I think a lot of times our tendency is to go, once it wheezes and coughs, you have asthma, right? Um, and they actually want us to move away from that because they've actually done studies that say that like, if we have that approach, we actually misdiagnose a whole lot of people. Do you understand? So you want to yeah, see about, yeah, you want to see about getting some type of objective objective evidence of airway obstruction with reversibility. Do you understand? Right. Yeah, and yeah. definitely in adults. I would say, so the CPS mentions uh, girls over the age of five and boys over the age of six. Exactly. A lot, a lot more immature. Uh, can, exactly. Can probably, exactly. can probably do uh, spirometry. You're looking exactly. for 12% reversibility after bronchodilation. Perfect. That's that number you want to keep in mind is 12%. Uh, um, kids usually above the age of six or seven, they can usually participate in some type of spirometry, right? So you can get an FEV1 over FVC because that's the first thing to go down um, um, when you have obstructive uh, when you have obstructive lung disease. Peak flows in adults, really, in older kids, you understand, in younger kids. Um, 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 and methylcholine challenges can be used as well, too, even though I've never seen one, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so, but, but I'm sure, um, 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 you know, if you have, if there's a big enough diet diagnostic conundrum they're going to uh, they're going to make an appearance as well but by far we see the reversibility of the fev1 um, in the context of a depressed fev1 over fvc um, right. in older children and in adults you definitely want to get that objectifiable diagnosis yeah so you do spir spirometry for diagnosis and then as you yeah. mentioned uh, peak flow in older kids and adults for kind of monitoring therapy and how their lungs are doing and keep in mind too they're being nicer with us with asthma but it doesn't just have to be like instantaneously with bronchodilation with a beta agonist it could be with a trial of inhaled corticosteroid. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So they've actually included that as well too, right? So yeah. even with a trial, remember we said that approach is for younger kids as well too. You know, those yeah. kids, we know there's that population of kids under that are under six, under two, that are going to develop asthma. And they're coming inside, you know, multiple times. We're like, this kid has asthma. It's yeah. allowing that as well too. If they have a history of, uh, of, of, of airway obstruction and, you know, with a trial of bronchodilators and with a trial or if they're sicker with a trial of inhaled corticosteroids, they're clearly objectively improved you can call them asthmatic as well yeah exactly and, and yeah. I, I, they've been cagey on that they're you know reactive airways disease if you don't have spirometry done or yeah. asthma asthma not asthma i mean we see the pa these patients all the time where i, tell I know them, look, and let me look ask you have asthma we don't have a diagnosis yeah. but you respond yeah. so well to bronchodilators like exactly that's what we're gonna treat you as there you go you have you have exactly and i don't even like the term reactive airway disease because all air, airways are supposed to be reactive like you have you get problems when you don't have reactive airways right yeah, that's a very fair point hyper reactive 
Exactly. It's hyper-reactive. Does that make sense? Maybe we should change the term. I vote for Brady Bouchard to have a new term, right? Like, you know, the hyper-responsive. High-rad. 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 Exactly. Not just rad. High-rad. We could use that. Exactly. Right? Because, like, when I see reactive airway, like, that's not a clearly defined term to me. Do you understand? And and they're actually moving away from from talking about things like that. Do you understand? Because there's no definition of what that means, right? Because you could argue that all airways, healthy airways, have, you know are reactive. Do you understand? They're supposed to be. That's why when you go in a dusty basement, you cough. Do you understand? So kind of avoid that term. That's what I say. Yeah. No, that sounds reasonable to me. I don't, exactly. I try not to use Perfect. the term term in general. I, I tell all my kids or all my parents of these, these young kids like that. I'm like, so this is probably asthma. We can't call it asthma yet, but we're going to treat it like asthma. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And this is this is where I'm justifying is because this has happened four times before. You understand? Exactly. And we've tried stuff. Well, let's give a course of steroids and see what happens, right? Inhale corticosteroids and see what happens. Oh, look, your child improved. So we're going to be this this child will be because then I think it's important because every time the child has a cough and maybe a little fever, instead of going to the emergency saying, oh, my God, kid with cough and fever, here's amoxicillin does that make sense maybe they get appropriate therapy for their asthma exacerbation do you understand yeah absolutely and i think it's important for that as well too yeah yeah so uh so say they get their diagnosis they either did spirometry or they're young enough and you're just saying they have asthma um probably one of the first things in the chronic realm is a bit of parental education on what medications you're going to try and what order you're going to try them on um and then as asthma action plans which i always thought you know, Perfect. I, I don't need more paperwork, but it really saves yeah. uh, a lot of emergency visits and a lot of parental anxiety. There's a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, the Lung Foundation of Canada has a good one. Uh, green, yellow, red, based on symptoms and, and what parents can do. So they'll have, they'll have their Ventolin on hand, of course, because everyone should who has asthma. Um, exactly. And they're either using their steroid or they're going to initiate their steroid. Um, exactly. When, when they get into the yellow zone, when they first start getting symptoms. And then red is basically, you know, go to the emerge. Yeah. When to, when to go to emerge. Exactly. Yeah. Patient, patient education, right? Like, like that's really creating an asthma action plan, um, um, self-directed therapy, right? Like so that you can, because you're doing, you know, it's a chronic condition, right? So it allows you to be empowered to direct, uh, uh, um, so patients can direct their therapy and know when the specific indications for coming, uh, coming inside are. So that's super important. Always remember too, like, you know, lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Fluffy the cat. Brady Bouchard, Fluffy the cat. Yeah, exactly. Brady, you asked me to fill your flow vent? Yeah. Fluffy the cat. Oh, the, oh yeah, Fluffy the cat. But you exactly. Fluffy the cat? Like, do, yeah. you, do you notice, like, yeah, yeah. my wheeze? Exactly. Yeah, I know. Exactly. So that's uh, that's when something where I have a good chat with parents because every asthmatic has different triggers. I mean, some of them are really common, especially pets. Um, yeah. and viral, I would say. Um, but you know, they're, they're with their kids 24 seven. They can see when they're bad, when they're good, yeah. when they have good days, bad days. It's the same exactly. thing with, you know, migraines for keeping a trigger diary and for atopy in general. So if they have yeah. bad eczema, like what's making it bad? Exactly. Um, it, it's smoking. On the parents. Yeah, exactly. It's, smoking. It's, it's the parents to and smoking. Yeah. It's and the, fluffy the cat. <laughs> fluffy the cat and smoking. It's it's on the parents to try and identify that and, and avoid the triggers if they can. Hand wash. I always love it. Hand washing. Um, um, making sure your vaccinations, including your flu shot, is up to date. Right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Those idea. things are going to be important and important trigger identification. Right. You know. So I I think um, you want to spend time to do that history. Remember Fluffy the cat. Fluffy the cat. There you go. You know, I'm, I had a patient once that told me that. Do you think it's Fluffy the cat? 
Brittany, I hope this is getting left in. I want Canada to think about Fluffy the cat. <laughs> so you want to make sure you do that exposure history as well, too. Um, um, that's going to be uh, be important. Remember Fluffy the cat, indoor wood burning stove, carpets, yada yada yada. We've all we've all um, um, seen what the uh, um, what the uh, what the potential triggers are. Smoking in parents is a trigger, right? Yeah, so really definitely. encourage if parents are smoke. I usually say, you know what? Um, um, smoking, even though you are smoking, you might smoke outside. It really is going to it can make your your kids asthma worse, right? Yeah, you so bring it in on their clothes, and it's exactly. A, and, it's, and it's a good time to talk about. You know, this is a good time to stop your smoking. There you go. This is a good time to stop the, to stop the smoking, right? Okay, so we're going to be doing trig- trigger identification. That's going to be important. Um, yeah, uh, making sure washing hands, flu shots, um, those things are going to be important. I, I I I don't like to gloss over that because that stuff is important, right? Like yeah, that sure. as those interventions can actually reduce the chance of presenting to the emerge, right? Yeah. And and uh, uh, can present uh, reduce the chance of presenting into the emerge and stuff. You know. Okay. So what's so what's so what's next and stuff. So I like to. There's a couple different patterns in kids. You know, we talk about the intermittent asthma, and then we talk about the more persistent asthma. So intermittent asthma is usually when you're fine in between exacerbations, right? And the most common yeah. cause for an exacerbation is an upper respiratory tract infection, right? Yeah. Um. Um. um more persistent asthma is when you're having symptoms in between your exacerbations. So you're not perfectly, um, 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 you're, you're not perfectly asymptomatic, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're not controlled, right? And, yeah. and you, you know, the, the CTS has uh, in their guideline what they consider control, you know, the, you know, less than one nighttime symptom, less than, you know, four daytime symptoms, you know. Um, that's, that's too much for me. I just tell parents if they're having, if they need to use their Ventolin more than three times a week, look at, they're not look controlled. Look at badass Brady just being <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't listen to guidelines, but I make but, the guidelines. No, no, like, like the guidelines are excellent. But you also have to remember, you're especially if this is a first diagnosis, you're throwing tons of information to parents. It's true. It's if true. they, it, I just tell them, if they, use Ventolin, if they feel they need to use Ventolin more than three times a week, we need to adjust yeah. something. Perfect, That's perfect. Simple. I, I like that. I like yeah. that. That kind of summarizes things because, you know, the guideline goes into sputomyosinophils and I've never checked anybody's sputomyosinophils and, you know, peak flow diurnal variations and stuff. So you're doing oh, yeah. it like multiple no times per day, right? <laughs> no so it talks about those types of things. I yeah. like exercise intolerance, like how many days of work or school have you missed because you can't breathe? Yeah, Do you find absolutely. that you can't keep up with the other kids? You know what yeah. I mean? Do you find that you can't keep up? You can't exercise like the other kids? Do you find that you can't exercise like the other adults? Those types yeah. of things. So when I'm doing the history on Brady Bouchard, like that's what he'll tell me, right? Like he's exactly. when I'm holding Fluffy the cat at night, you know what I mean? And yeah, I'm coughing really and sneezing bad. all night. Yeah. And you know, you know, I don't want to let him go. Like he yeah. just he's just so fluffy, right? I'll immediately get rid of the cat. Exactly. You'll yeah. immediately get rid of Fluffy the cat, right? Yeah. So there yeah. we go. Excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, first line medical therapy. So everybody with asthma, they get a Ventolin prescription. Perfect. Short acting bronchodilator. Love it. Yeah, they get uh, uh, education around how to use a spacer. They obviously get spacers part of their prescription yeah. as well. Age congruent spacer device. Love it. What do you do with the cool? What do you do with the person that just won't use the spacer? Like, you yeah. know, when I was when I was 16, I had asthma and I was a little badass, right? I'm like, I'm not using a spacer. Like, yeah, well, and that, and that's the topic I. I try and bring a little bit, bit of humility to it because, um, you know, I've used the dummy Ventolin devices. I'm like, I'm fairly well coordinated and I yeah. can't get that stuff down my throat without a spacer. Really? Like, really? It's, it's tough to do. And, yeah, you know, that's why I keep on telling you, Brady, to use your spacer. Yeah, exactly. And put down Fluffy the cat and not yeah. sleep with Fluffy the cat, right? And without your spacer, right? So, stuff you can do for the stubborn teenager, which is all of them, um, is. 
uh, talking to them about if they get to a controlled state, which is what you're aiming for, they don't need their Ventolin at all. They don't need to bring, you know, they don't need to bring their spacer out of their backpack at school. There so, you go. Uh, if they use their steroids, at the very least, with a spacer morning and night, or just morning if they're using uh, uh, Q-Bar, one of the newer ones. Um, what about the discus? What about, like, what about yeah. the powder? Yeah, exactly. That's reasonable, too. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes, you know, if it's like, you, you know, it's 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 maybe try a little bit of the powder and stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah, I don't think that's covered under NIHB, though. I think because I know. Ne- I've never used it <laughs> with a patient. I know, I know. <laughs> I actually so, totally forgot option, about it until right? you mentioned it. Yeah. Exactly. It yeah. can be an option as well. But yeah, if you can if you can get, you know, people to use a spacer, and it's a real challenge sometimes, you know what I mean? Yeah. But if you can get people to use a spacer, definitely better deposition. And this would be a context to uh, to really encourage that. So everybody's yeah. getting their short-acting bronchodilator. They're getting education, yeah. um, 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 asthma action plan, trigger identification, lifestyle modification. Everybody's getting that. They're short-acting bronchodilator. And then what are you going to do very, very early on in the diagnosis of asthma is use an inhaled... Corticosteroid. Oh, my God. ICS. There you go. So if on your history, if they have intermittent symptoms to start with, probably just send them away with the Ventolin, give them a few weeks, uh, see how they do. If they're using it more than, you know, whatever the CPS says or what I go with, you know, three times a week kind of thing. Or if, you know, you're rechecking their history and they're they're having symptoms, but they're not using their Ventolin uh, when they should. So they're not functioning at their job, they're not functioning at work, um, you know, they're getting exertional dyspnea. Then that's when you add on the ICS. Perfect, perfect. Or like you said, early on in most asthmatics, to be honest, because their asthma is usually bad enough, they should have it up front. Exactly, exactly and stuff. And there's many different ICSs, um, um, you know, there's there's many different ones. I don't want to talk anyone about specific. I just usually like to know, I just usually know one, I just tend to use it, you know, and and, and use fluticasone. And I know what the the low and kind of the moderate and kind of the high dose is. So you can pick whatever inhaled corticosteroid you like, the du jour, um, where you are and use it from there um what's next on top so it's kind of an asthma ladder so in p in in older kids and adults so yep. above the age of kind of six or so you want to fairly early on you know once you've kind of gone from the the, the uh the uh the mild and then you do a reassessment and let's say they're not where they need to be and stuff you may go up to the moderate um you may also choose to add what's the next level dr brady bouchard the long acting yeah, well, I'd probably go like low, medium, high dose ICS by itself first. Yeah, yeah. But then after that, you can add on a LABA if they're old enough. Yeah. So long yeah, acting if- bronchodilator. Yeah, you could, you could. There's some evidence that you may be like, in, especially in adults and stuff, they probably do better. Like, because it's like kind of like, what's better? Is it going from a medium or to a high, or yeah. is it better to add like a LABA? Do you understand? So, so there's a couple drug company sponsored trials that said, well, maybe adding the LABA. You know what I mean? And the guideline kind of yeah. it introduces that LABA kind of in that more moderate range. You know what I mean? Practically speaking, usually people are on a moderate to high dose, and then you kind of add the LABA on top of that, right? Yeah, and then an alternative second line. Um, which the CPS has in their guidelines as well. Um, I don't think is used second line. It's more third line is the Litra, Litra, Leukotriene receptor antagonist. Exactly, exactly and stuff. Yeah, so that can be used on top, you know, um, that can be used uh, uh, on top as well too. So definitely for young kids under six, you want to avoid labas by themselves. Do you understand? Like you don't want to use them in under six and stuff, right? Yeah. It was a trial called the SMART trial. You can read about it and stuff. And they used labas in kids under six and found out they did worse, right? Yeah. So definitely in children, you'd want to see about inhale, um, um, increasing the dose of inhaled corticosteroid and then sort of adding the laba, you know, after that, right? Whereas yeah. in adults, you may choose to add the laba a bit earlier. So it's kind of an asthma a ladder. So in kids, we definitely avoid the uh, the uh, the uh, the labas. Um, older kids and adults, um, 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 their agents definitely 
definitely to consider after you're on an inhaled corticosteroid. And then after that, the leukotriene receptor antagonist. Sometimes you'll have to use it a bit earlier if people don't necessarily want to be on the corticosteroid, right? Yeah. Um, for whatever reason. Um, um, they, we know they don't work as good, do you understand, as corticosteroids, but they do offer some, um, um, mm-hmm. some level of antagonism control, right? But they're nowhere near as, uh, they're not, uh, they're not as good as, uh, as, as inhaled corticosteroids, right? Yeah. And then after that, you start getting into, anti-IGEs exactly and stuff and and Zolaire which is omalizumab which is anti-IGE so really by then your respirologist is going to be using that and even if you think about it those are really for people who have very very severe asthma um, who is not well controlled most of the time if you're at that stage oftentimes there's a lifestyle intervention that you're not making do you understand like you're still smoking and you have asthma do you understand Exactly. You refuse to put down Fluffy the cat, even though I'm told <laughs> Dr. Bouchard. Get rid of the stopped. cat and get a dog. I know exactly. Yeah. Too. You know, use his use his space or designs and stop steeping with Fluffy the cat. Oh, and God. he refuses to not, to put that persist in that, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of interesting medications coming out on asthma too. More, as I always say, monoclonal antibodies are taking over the world. They are. So, um, yeah, there, there, there's new ones that are coming out and stuff, um, that are various, uh, affect various, uh, um, uh, stages in the inflammatory pathway and stuff. So be, uh, be on the lookout and stuff like that. There's a couple of them that are going to be coming out shortly and stuff, but they're not available in Canada yet, we really only have um, the anti-IgE medication. And really, that's for a subset of people. Usually, there's a whole bunch of criteria for using them. Um, oftentimes, you have a high NFL count or a high IgE count and stuff. So there's specific criteria for using them. So most of the time, they're, they're kind of a respirologist-only kind of medication and stuff. Yeah, for sure. And they're all Perfect. they're all very expensive right now, of course. Very, very expensive. IgEs, yeah. Monoclonal antibodies are taking over the world. Yeah, exactly. So uh, asthma is chronic. It's characterized by these intermittent exacerbations. Uh, Most people, if they do lifestyle modifications um, and are on some kind of long-term control, uh, can be relatively symptom-free for their whole life. Most kids with really bad asthma don't necessarily grow out of it, but it gets better with age. Exactly, exactly. And remember, folks, don't turn off your brain. Not everything that wheezes is asthma, right? Yeah, Foreign bodies, there's other conditions and stuff. So if I have somebody, it's like, why does this person have asthma? Why can't I control their asthma? And let's say they're doing all this stuff right. You may look at some of those alternate diagnoses, right? So not everything that wheezes is asthma, right? A lot of things that wheeze are asthma, but uh, not everything that uh, wheezes is asthma. So you definitely want to want to want to broaden your uh, your differential. But I agree with that totally, Brady. Awesome. Now you can get back to hugging Fluffy the cat. And yeah. not using your arrow chamber. We're, we're actually leaving in uh, three minutes to go give Addie her two-month shots. There we go. Love yeah. it. Leave that into the podcast. That's our plug for vaccination. Very important, folks. There we go. We'll do that. Very important, folks. Thanks for the All chat right, today, Mike. Alrighty, you take care. Cheers. Bye.